Welcome back to Forces of Good, the superpower of everyday negotiation. I'm Lucia Cantor St. Amour with co-host Nina Greeley. Negotiation is everywhere, every day. This is the Negotiation Laboratory, where we share insights into basic skills, strategy, history, storytelling, behavioral sciences, and social trends. It's all connected. We are all connected. And everyone can learn the everyday negotiation superpower to be used only for the forces of good. Okay, everyone, grab your lab coat and chemistry set. This is another more advanced episode and one you can consider a primer in neuroscience, emotions, and how they impact decision-making in negotiation, along with understanding the myth of rationality. To be clear, I am not a neuroscientist. I'm not even strong in the sciences, so I'm pretty confident that anyone can gain a basic understanding of the crossover of neuroscience and the superpower of everyday negotiation. Well, that's reassuring, Lucia, because I'm no science whiz either. And this sounds like pretty specialized stuff. It does, doesn't it? It's yet another one of those topics, like negotiation itself, where the average person really can gain some walking around knowledge. The starting point I try to remember as a mediator is that when parties hire me to help them, they're in some heightened state and often a state of crisis. They have most likely already tried to work out a deal and met with impasse. Even people in everyday negotiation scenarios can feel various degrees of a sense of crisis. In an arousal state, the brain chooses from its cabinet of hormones to secrete, a favorite of which is cortisol. Increased cortisol levels impact decision-making, risk assessment, rational cognition, focus, perception of threat, and working memory. This is how much information a person can hold process and use at any given moment. The brain responds by and large the same way for both physical threats, a snake, and emotional threats. She's going for full custody of the kids. Or I just got outbid on eBay with only two minutes left of the auction. And the cognitive response toggles between three fundamental levels of functioning. Reptilian This is the fight or flight, the neural networks related to fear and survival, a very durable network. Paleomammalian, this is our social bonds and where we make decisions. And neocortical, this is the high-level executive functions. Okay, this is fascinating. I had no idea the brain processed physical and emotional threats the same way. Right? It's the same with pain. We have plenty of research showing that the psychological pain of being ghosted by someone lights up the same area of the brain as physical pain. And one of the recommended remedies for someone experiencing the pain of ghosting is, ready, Nina? What? What is it? Ice cream, maybe? Potato chips? (laughs) (laughs) That might help, too. It's acetaminophen also known as Tylenol. Stop it, really? Not making this up. 
Well, I wish I'd known that back in my dating days. Well, but that may have decreased Ben and Jerry's ice cream profits. So anyway, the exercise of law, engineering, accounting, science, etc. is a neocortical activity, but decision-making is a sub-neocortical activity. So when someone suddenly shifts position and we think they're acting irrationally, it's that a different part of the brain, the non-executive part, has taken over. Even the common act of getting angry at one's kids is a core relational theme. I'm going to talk more about that in a few minutes. That's left over from the reptilian brain. My progeny is in danger and I need to act. But if the higher executive brain reappraises in time, it can ask whether anger is really the appropriate response to the situation. Think of how helpful a mediator or having someone with you in a negotiation who is objective can be if they can help recognize when this is happening. Yes, that makes total sense because I can imagine it can be very difficult to recognize it in yourself, especially in the heat of the moment. Exactly, Nina. Not impossible, but it requires real self-awareness and presence of mind and body. Remember our interoception episode covered in episode number six. I can imagine. Lucia, we were talking earlier about the brain's three-goal system. Can you say more about that? Sure. The the brain employs a three-goal system. Avoid. You're going to avoid sticks, so threats, penalty, pain. Approach. These are the carrots, the rewards and attach to other people, our need to bond. Although we're wired to cooperate socially and to bond, we are very reactive to threats and the brain has a negativity bias. This means the sympathetic nervous system lights up like a Christmas tree at even a whiff of a threat and that sticks are more impactful than carrots. Okay, I have heard of the negativity bias. It's why we notice and we react more strongly to bad news than to good news, right? Simply put, yes. This is where we need to talk about the amygdala hippocampus system. It is primed to label experiences negatively and will flag a negative experience prominently in the memory. With ambiguous communication, this means that If a negative inference can be made, it will be made. In lieu of a positive interpretation, the negativity bias is so sturdy that it takes five positive interactions to undo a single negative one. And I believe the famous Dr. John Gottman is the one who said that. He's the psychologist who in the early 90s studied married couples talking for 15 minutes about something innocuous, and predicted with 94% accuracy the traits that led to couples ending up in divorce. Wow. I had no idea how strong a bias it was. I mean, that's potentially very useful information to have. That's what I'm saying. People will do more to avoid a loss than realize a gain. 
This is consistent with the quiz results we discussed in episode 15 on mental maps and traps in negotiation. Basically, the avoid system is routinely hijacking the approach and attach systems. The result of threat reactivity is that people tend to overestimate threat and underestimate opportunity in their initial appraisals. If they don't reappraise that the snake is a stick, the brain continues to pump cortisol and reinforce stress. The cost is that actions and decisions while feeling threatened lead to overreactions, which causes other people to feel threatened, and then you've got a vicious cycle. The approach system is inhibited, thus limiting options and opportunities. Okay, Mm. so... That was a lot. (laughs) Here's the takeaway. Understand that it is more likely that you and other people in negotiations will deviate from rationality than be consistently rational. Use active listening, episodes seven and eight, and take breaks to help the brain reappraise and stop the vicious cycle. You know, Lucia, this information is both new to me and very enlightening. I... I'm thinking I'm going to have to start paying better attention to my interactions with people to see if I can spot that negativity bias at work. So what else do I need to be aware of? I mean, what can you tell me about the role of emotions in negotiations? Oh, a lot, but <laughs> but I'll keep it brief for today. Here's what I have learned from my 30 plus hours of training from the Paul Ekman group and Dr. Ekman's book, Emotions Revealed. Core relational themes, I mentioned this earlier, inform how we deal with people in the world. Our cell assemblies have, over thousands of years, created a sturdy emotion alert database. This database serves an important purpose. So fear, for example, protects us. Our lives are saved because we are able to respond to threats of harm protectively, without thought even. Disgust reactions make us cautious about indulging in activities that literally or figuratively might be toxic. Sadness and despair over loss signals to others that we may need help. Even anger is useful. It warns others and us as well when things are thwarting us and caution might be appropriate. Probably the most important nugget I learned from Paul Ekman's book, Emotions Revealed, is the concept of the refractory state. This is the time during which our thinking cannot incorporate information that does not fit or agree with the emotion we are feeling. This is also harkens back to episode 15 and confirmation bias. Ah. It's confirmation bias supersized. For example, Nina... Have you ever tried to apologize to someone while they are still mad at you? (laughs) Yeah, I've tried. And how did that go for you? You know, I'm thinking actually of a specific example right now, and it did not go very well at all. Right. Because (laughs) the refractory state wasn't finished. Well, I wish I had known that sooner. Now that don't makes total sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's futile. A, a refractory state lasts an average of 20 minutes, and the person experiencing the strong emotion simply cannot take in any new information, even a sincere apology. 
until the refractory state has passed. As a mediator, recognizing a refractory state can be key in terms of what I do next. In the refractory state, the executive level of the brain is not operating during this refractory period. And it may be time for a break and or switching to asynchronous communication. So go ahead and type that mean email or text message during the refractory state and then wait on sending it. Wait an hour and or send it to a trusted confidant first for review and perspective. Once you hit send, you can't take it back. But Nina, uh, you're laughing. I'm sure you've never done that. (laughs) What? Oh, no. No, never. (laughs) I'm a cool cucumber, Lucia, as level-headed as they come. (laughs) I knew that already. So here's the takeaway on, on that section. It's that rationality is a myth. Instead, human behavior and circumstances are predictably irrational. The title of another book I recommend by Dan Ariely, understanding and accepting this premise can demystify how people behave in negotiation and in life. Nina, although you and I are experienced attorneys, well-trained in analytical reasoning, we would do well not to hail reasoned and analytical dialogue as the dominating mode of conflict management or deal-making. Rational choice is just one approach to negotiation and conflict, and not necessarily the most effective one where emotions, distrust, and suspicions simply cannot be suspended, even among people of goodwill and reason. And P.S., everyone thinks of themselves as a person of goodwill and reason. (laughs) Yeah, I've noticed that. Ooh, we need to pause for just about 30 seconds to talk about our sponsor, the Empowered Cookie. High fiber, low sugar, paleo, vegan, small batch, from scratch. It's the Empowered Cookie. I've been consuming and sharing them for years. I share them with my son's special education class, where many students have special dietary restrictions. They are yummy and so satisfying that I can often only eat half for a snack. Empower your eating routine with the Empowered Cookie. Empoweredcookie.com. Enter code SUPERPOWER2022 for a discount at checkout. Okay, I need to squeeze in something else about Paul Ekman because it relates to emotions and also a teaser I mentioned way back in episode two or three, something like that. When I was talking about the importance of building rapport, I said, not only does rapport building humanize a negotiation and alleviate some of the defensive posturing, but it also provides a baseline of behavior for that person. Baseline behaviors, when an individual's defenses aren't triggered, provide a basis for comparison later in a negotiation when their words and actions deviate from the baseline. You may not know the meaning of the deviation, and it's very important you don't make assumptions and commit a fellow's error. That's what I said. Yes, and I was really hoping you'd circle back to that, Lucia, because I've been very curious about what Uh, that is. And I knew that would pique your curiosity because you're a Shakespeare expert (laughs) and aficionado. Nope, I didn't forget. I teased everyone with it in an earlier episode. So, okay, what's Othello's error? 
First of all, it's a term coined by Paul Ekman, renowned University of California, San Francisco psychologist for his research in lie detection and emotional micro-expression. For those of you rusty on your Shakespeare, Nina, why don't you take it away? Why don't you fill everyone in? Okay, great. Well, in the Shakespeare play Othello, Iago's the villain, convinces Othello that Othello's wife, Desdemona, has been unfaithful to him with Cassio, this handsome soldier in Othello's army. And Iago uses Desdemona's handkerchief, which she lost, and he got his hands on, I won't go into how, to help in his plan. He finds a way to get into Cassio's quarters. Then Othello confronts his wife with a false accusation and the evidence of the handkerchief, and she, uh, understandably, becomes very fearful, and she acts very nervously, and Othello interprets her behavior as even further evidence of her adultery, and ultimately, he kills her. Only later does he discover that Iago planted the handkerchief and has been lying to him the whole time, and the knowledge totally undoes him, and he also kills himself. It's a pretty tragic play. So, okay, Lucia, wait, the lesson here is what? Simply noticing a change from baseline may be enough to inform you it's time to pause and regroup, but not enough to take your preliminary assumptions as fact. See again, confirmation bias from episode 15. Ah, so Othello noticed the change in Desdemona's behavior, and he leapt to the conclusion that it was further evidence of her guilt. I get it now. It's funny because, you know, I've studied this play quite thoroughly, but I never thought of it as illustrative of negotiation pitfalls. Right. Othello noticed Desdemona's reaction of fear in the face of his aggressive accusations and interpreted the signs of fear as the fear of having been caught for infidelity, not the fear of being falsely accused. So you might key into the correct emotional reaction or change from baseline but you might not know what it means. Yeah, and when you think about it, Othello's reaction and this misreading is very common and kind of depressingly human. I mean, I think we can trace a lot of human tragedy to that sort of misreading. On a macro level, even tragedies like wars, at least as they're fought by the common people, you know, the soldiers who are doing the actual fighting. You're onto something here, Nina, without even realizing it. According to social psychologist Mari Fitzduff, our quote-unquote wars today appeal to instincts and savage emotions, not rationality. They are about identity, inequality, and exclusions. We have feelings and instincts to serve our survival as human beings through, well, through a few avenues. One she talks about is DNA. The second is hormones. So dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, adrenaline, testosterone. And the third is environment. In fact, Fitzduff discusses a gene variant called the DRD4-7R. Did you get that, Nina? Oh, come on. Everyone knows about the DRD4-whatever. What was it again? (laughs) (laughs) It it sounds like a Star Wars droid, right? The DRD4-7R, which I wrote down before we recorded the episode. I'm not doing that from memory. And it affects dopamine. People with this gene variant are more likely to be open-minded and to enjoy pleasure from variety, novelty, and diversity. 
fMRI scans, and you have to imagine a little asterisk here because I want to say something later about fMRI scans. They show how variances in biology and genetics influence differences in attitudes and beliefs. Conservatives have larger amygdala structures, that is, the emotions, the fear center of the brain, and higher startle responses than liberals. They are more likely to support capital punishment, stricter immigrant controls, more military spending. People at the lower amygdala end are happier in general and experience less startle response. You know, I have actually noticed that media sources like Fox News seem to present a greater proportion of scary news stories, frightening news stories, than more moderate channels do. Oh, but wait, there's more. Oh, oh, good, because this is good stuff, Lucia. I feel kind of like the magician is showing the audience the secrets behind the trick. I know, and especially relevant these days with everything going on in the world. Brains differ on a continuum in responding to new information, uncertainty, fear, and strangers. Biologically, humans have evolved for cooperation, but only for some people. This gets into in-group versus out-group dynamics. Testosterone and oxytocin, the same hormones that warriors had, increase that sense of belonging and reduce fear. They also promote ethnocentric behavior and increase suspicion and rejection of others outside the tribe. So as Fitzstuff puts it, oxytocin binds us but also blinds us. The need to belong is a major driver of war. Most people need to belong more than they need to be right. That is absolutely fascinating. Right. So when beliefs are contradicted, fMRI showed an increase in emotion, amygdala response, but no increase in cortex reasoning. When people are in conflict, they like things to be simple, and it is more likely that nuanced categories of people get hurt because they are confusing. So here's the punchline. Are you ready? I'm on pins and needles. (laughs) (laughs) Don't over-rely on facts during conflict. Whoa. Now... Lucia, that's not what they taught us in law school. (laughs) No, it's like backwards, upside down world for attorneys. Exactly. Okay, so I have to loop back to this because I promised you a word about neuroscience and fMRI scans. Even as someone who cites consistently to brain science, I bristle at how fashionable this has become in the mainstream media The media loves to cover new fMRI results, and the business world is hungry for the consumer brain to be decoded. Unfortunately, studies are often tiny because of the high costs of running the machine, and interpreting the results in the data can be tough to interpret. A 2009 study of a salmon, for instance, showed the, quote, fish's brain exhibited increased activity for emotional images, unquote. The only problem? The fish was dead. Oh, no. 
<laughs> in fairness, the technology has improved since then, but it's too funny an anecdote not to share. And I stand by my caution about how marketers and media cite to fMRI as a fancy sounding persuasion tool. You know, I really appreciate this, Lucia. This has been fascinating. I, my brain is spinning right now with ideas. I'm particularly wondering how much of what you said could be used to help bridge the gap with people on the other side of this political chasm we seem to have in this country right now. But for now, I think I'm going to just try to remember some of what I've learned today the next time my husband and I get in an argument. <laughs> hey, if this podcast starts with just promoting marital harmony, we've begun to do our job. Amen. <laughs> Until next time. Thanks for listening, or even partially listening while you multitask. You never know what might stick with you. Keep your ear out for this space because we sure do appreciate your company. You can find us on Substack, Apple Podcasts, and at pactumfactum.com.